You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, and thank you all so much for joining me for this week's episode. I wanted to focus on the process of observing limits this week because I've been hearing so many people talk about feeling burned out and emotionally exhausted and pretty depleted and I view the process of observing limits as a key way in which we can not only practice self-care, the kind of self-care that can prevent burnout, but also practice being in alignment with ourselves in a way that also nurtures our relationships. So we'll start off by talking about some of the benefits of observing limits, which some people refer to as setting limits or setting boundaries, and ways in which we can engage in this process of observing limits that truly reflects our innermost, deepest needs and desires. We'll then walk through a five-step process for effectively observing limits, which will include ways to identify what our limits are and when they've been crossed, as well as concrete strategies for addressing some of the most concrete barriers that can arise when we are trying to observe limits. And this five-step process emphasizes Again, observing limits in a way that aligns with our values maintains relationships when that's in our interest to maintain the relationship and help us feel more empowered and confident. So I view observing limits as a necessary part of being in relationships with other people. I know that we've all had experiences in relationships in which we have felt our buttons pushed. And this could look a lot of different ways. For example, people calling us or texting us at inopportune times and expecting us to speak to them right then and there. Feeling criticized by other people. People making comments about our lifestyle or habits or appearance that are not welcome. And perhaps even giving unwanted advice. And so lots of examples of ways in which this can manifest. And I view these experiences of button pushing as opportunities to practice observing our limits. Allowing behavior that is upsetting without doing anything in response can be a recipe for for resentment and burnout and relationship rupture. So it really is crucial to be monitoring our limits across time within each individual relationship in our lives and finding ways to observe limits in a way that honors our needs and ourselves and our desires and also is aligned with our values. I often get asked why I use the expression observing limits rather than setting limits or setting boundaries and the language that I use to describe this really is intentional and so I just wanted to take a minute to share a bit more about that choice here. So I personally prefer to use the term observing limits rather than setting limits or boundaries because Setting limits, setting boundaries, that phrase seems to imply that there is a clear, common standard applicable across different people and situations about behaviors that are, quote, appropriate and, quote, inappropriate. For me, the word limits or the phrase observing limits is intended to convey that personal limits are unique and 
variable. And that variation in limits is a normal part of human experience. Limits are also going to vary within relationships, within individuals, and across people and over time. So for me, the phrase observing limits is really a non-judgmental stance. It's a way to honor this process of observing limits that isn't laden with an emotional charge of of judgment. So for example, I might have a certain limit right now about how late I'm willing to take calls from people and when I am going to bed and shut off electronic devices because of the level of stress in my life, because of my life circumstances. Now this limit that I have right now may be very different than a limit that I had last year or last week. And similarly, it may change down the road. And other people may have different limits in this regard. Maybe some people are not bothered when someone calls them and they've already fallen asleep or they aren't comfortable with turning their phones on silent or do not disturb. And so when we frame limits in this way, when someone crosses our limit, that doesn't make them categorically bad or wrong or inappropriate. It just makes it a poor fit for what I need in this moment because other people may not have that same limit. And similarly, I am not bad or wrong or inappropriate or unreasonable for having this limit. It's about what isn't working for me for whatever reason or set of reasons that are true in my life. So when we take this non-judgmental stance and frame limits in this way, it allows us to keep the focus on ourselves and what isn't working for us rather than focusing on the other person's behavior with labels of bad or wrong or inappropriate, which then in turn increases the chances that we get what we need because there's less defensiveness and less pushback. So imagine for a minute that if I say to you, you know, it's really inappropriate for you to interrupt me when I'm talking. You might experience that as somewhat harsh and be a bit put off by it. And you also might wonder, well, I interrupt other people in my life and it's not so big of a deal. And so you might then communicate that to me. Whereas if I instead say to you, when you interrupt me, I notice that I lose my train of thought and get really distracted and really focus on the personal impact that your behavior has on me you may not agree with it. You may not feel that it's necessary for you to stop interrupting me. But once you know what it means to me and how it affects me, you're probably going to be more motivated to do what I'm asking. And ultimately will be able to understand my feelings and perspective more easily if I frame it in this way because it doesn't put you on the defense. So ultimately, when we frame limits in this more non-judgmental way as unique and variable within people, across people, over time, it can really get us out of a power struggle about whose perspective is right and whose perspective is wrong because we're really focused on that match or that level of fit as opposed to these categories categories of good, bad, appropriate, inappropriate, acceptable, unacceptable. I also prefer to use the term observing limits rather than setting limits because we often need to continue to attend to our limits over time because of this natural variation that we're talking about. And also when we are trying to observe limits in the context of relationships, Getting someone to hear our perspective and to respond in a different way that more closely aligns with our needs is not necessarily something that we can achieve in one conversation. And so this process of observing limits really requires moment-to-moment awareness of ourselves and other people and the dynamics between us versus a more rigid line in the sand that we set one time and one time only. In my mind, there are so many benefits to observing limits in our lives and I want to take a few minutes to share some of these benefits with you because I do think the process of observing limits in relationships can be hard at times. It can be uncomfortable. It can be anxiety provoking. And so I know for me in my life, when I am doing something hard, when I am asking myself to step outside of my comfort zone, it helps me to do that when 
and I know why I'm doing it. And so if we have this broader frame in mind of all of the reasons to observe limits that align with our values and bring us the kind of satisfaction in life that we would like and that we deserve, I think it can really help us navigate those difficulties with a bit more persistence. So one of the most common misconceptions out there that I think is a message that many of us have internalized from society, and for those of us who identify as women, I think this is a message that we often get socialized to believe as women, is that assertiveness is necessarily equated with aggression, meaning that observing limits is likely to hurt other people's feelings or get registered as something that is harsh. And in actuality, observing limits is an act of compassion for ourselves and for other people. When we are identifying what is happening in a relationship that is crossing our limits in some kind of way, We're treating our own needs as valid by trying to recognize when that line gets crossed. And we're also treating our own needs as valid by trying to get those needs met through this conversation of expressing our limits and how the other person can meet our needs more effectively. And so we're also expressing compassion for the other person because we're giving them an opportunity to give us what we need rather than leaving them to mind read or not really know exactly why we might be upset in a certain circumstance and we might be getting so upset that resentment is building in a way that compromises the relationship and they're really left in the dark. I also view the process of observing limits as a way to build resilience. When we identify our limits and express them to other people, we're treating ourselves and other people as capable rather than fragile and we're approaching these interactions with a growth mindset we're moving forward with the assumption that we can handle this we can handle a difficult conversation we're assuming that people are capable of giving us what we need and we're capable of asking for what we need and we're also moving forward with the mindset that we're entitled to have our needs met And that if other people are not willing or able to give us what we're asking for, we will have the wisdom and capacity to know how to respond accordingly. Another key part of this resilience building is the potential for feeling less burned out because when we are able to communicate our limits effectively and other people mind our limits respectfully and accordingly, we can recharge, we can have more space, we can have more emotional bandwidth. This is also a process that can enhance our self-awareness. Through the process of tapping into what is and isn't working for us, we can become more intimate with ourselves, more intimate with understanding our own needs and the ways in which our limits are being crossed in a way that can help us acknowledge those needs explicitly to ourselves and other people, therefore increasing the likelihood that those needs get met. So I think that self-awareness and self-intimacy component is also a really huge benefit of this process. Observing limits also allows us to maintain a sense of empowerment and self-respect or to enhance our sense of empowerment and self-respect. We can communicate more clearly and effectively when this process leads to a good outcome, even if it's a bit of a sticky or rough patch to get there, we can have more confidence in our own abilities. And that can make us better friends and partners and parents. And there's also some research that shows that when we observe our own limits, we're actually more able to respect other people's limits. There's something about uh, a kind of empathy that grows when we are in the place of observing limits because we can perspective take when someone else is asking something of us. And then there's also, of course, a huge number of benefits to the health of our relationships when we observe limits. Relationships can be more satisfying and connected and it can also be a way to build trust. When we ask someone to do something differently and express how what they're doing may not be aligned with our needs and they actually listen and respond, that can really help us deepen intimacy and trust their ability to hear hard feedback at times and to really want to rise the occasion to meet our needs when we do ask. 
And of course, there are a lot of other benefits to observing relationships that I haven't highlighted here. And so I encourage you to think a bit for yourself why observing limits is important to you in your life and the ways in which upping your game, so to speak, in terms of observing limits might enhance the quality of your life and your sense of self-worth and your relationships. So once you have a solid foundation in the reasons to observe limits, I think it's also important to have a personalized way to identify when your limits have been crossed. And I think there are three key barometers that can be helpful to consider in this regard. Your level of motivation, your level of effectiveness, and your level of emotional intensity. And we'll walk through each of these in a little bit more detail. So the first, motivation. So if you start to notice that you feel less motivated to do things for a certain person, or you feel less willing to be around them, maybe you start avoiding them, withdrawing from them emotionally, maybe making up excuses to not spend time with them, that can be a sign that some kind of limit has been crossed, your level of motivation to be around them, to do things for them. The second is effectiveness. So how effective you feel you are being in that relationship in terms of being a person who you want to be, the best version of yourself with the most alignment with your values. So perhaps you might not be communicating as effectively as you have in the past. Maybe you're having difficulties staying present and really tuning into conversations with this person. So if you notice that the kinds of values that you try to uphold and embody in relationships are being compromised in some way, that your effectiveness in living out those values in this relationship are not quite where you want them to be, that can be another sign that limits have been crossed. And the third is emotional intensity. So if you notice emotions like frustration, irritation, anger, resentment, dread, perhaps feelings of helplessness or hopelessness, this could show up as a certain kind of tension or texture in your body. It could show up as certain thoughts like, well, okay, I can, I can put up with this for a little longer versus I really want to keep putting up with this. So it's sort of a sense of white knuckling through or counting down the time on the clock until your time with this person is over. Maybe your heart sinks when you see a text message from them or you kind of have that internal eye roll or sigh. Those are all signs that your emotional bandwidth is being exceeded and that there's some kind of limit that is potentially being crossed in this relationship. And of course, as you can imagine, there can be real burnout that sets in when you have reached your limits. And the burnout can be felt mentally and emotionally and physically. So it's almost like you're maxing out in all three of these areas, motivation, effectiveness, and emotions, when you are at a stage of burnout. So there could be such low motivation that there's full-on apathy. There can be so little effectiveness that you really feel a lack of accomplishment and a lack of competence and so much emotional intensity that there's almost a cynicism or a severe level of attachment. And so intervening early is really key when it comes to observing limits. And so I often use this metaphor of intervening at the low-grade toothache stage of the game rather than a full-blown root canal. So you don't want to wait to the point where you're so burned out, where your limits have been so far exceeded that you need that emergency root canal. You want to intervene earlier in the process because it's less pain for you and you're probably more able to assert your limits, to ask for what you need in an effective way because you're less tapped out emotionally and physically. So I'd like to pause for a minute for you to consider in your own life how you know when someone is pushing your buttons, how you know that your limits have been exceeded and what that looks like for you. And again, because limits vary within and across people and over time, it may look different in the different relationships in your life. So really thinking about how do I know and what is a way in which I can monitor these signs in an ongoing way so that I can intervene at that low-grade toothache kind of level? 
I would also love for you to consider how you relate to warning signs when they show up. Do you tend to judge yourself for them? Do you ignore the warning signs and try to power through? Is there self-doubt that sets in? Do you end up getting angry and kind of sharp or short with other people? And do you wait until things get really, really bad? Do you end up communicating in a way that's more intense than you would like? And so really thinking about what your patterns are in terms of relating to these warning signs and perhaps considering what happens in your relationships and to your own sense of self-worth as a result of some of these patterns and how you might tend to manage these kinds of dilemmas. Being able to honestly answer these questions for yourself without judgment will equip you to effectively engage with the first step of this five-step observing limits process, which is to monitor your limits in an ongoing way within and across relationships and in different life domains so that you can identify early when a limit has been crossed. And so I think it might be helpful for us to spend a little bit of time thinking about the different kinds of limits that we as human beings might have. And again, this will not be an exhaustive list, but I do want to share some examples to help facilitate some of your thinking around this topic in your own life. So the first is time. So perhaps you have limits around timeliness, and so it can be really frustrating for you if you're in a relationship with someone who tends to be late. Another limit related to time could be around someone respecting when you say you have to hang up a phone conversation or leave and they keep talking. So limits around time. There can also be limits that we have around space. So maybe someone really wants to talk about a heated topic in the relationship, but we need some time to process and we want some time to process alone. And so we need some some physical and emotional distance in order to do that. There could also be limits around requests for privacy and the extent to which those are and are not honored. We can also have limits around conflict resolution style. So the ways in which people resolve conflict that feel like a fit for us or not. Some people are able to really escalate their volume in conflict and that feels tolerable and okay to both people in the conflict whereas for other people that can be pretty activating and it can bring up lots of negative memories and experiences from the past and so that is something that can exceed limits. It could also be limits around being asked to engage in a conflict resolution style that doesn't come naturally to you and there being some important negotiation with the other person around that. We can also have limits around language, so certain words or phrases that people use that we don't like, that we feel offended by, that hurt our feelings. Could be a certain tone of voice. Some people really use lighthearted humor at times in the context of of conflict or just life, and for some people that are very sensitive to that, that's not a preferred language style or communication style, so there might be limits around that. There can also be limits around lifestyle and habits. So people giving feedback that feels judgmental or disapproving or critical or perhaps giving advice that is not solicited and does not feel welcome. There can also be limits around the body. So this could be related to sexual contexts or more non-sexual physical intimacy in terms of the type of physical touch that we prefer, the literal physical distance between us, maybe timing in terms of of physical touch. So someone saying, hey, I want to give you a hug rather than just giving a hug and perhaps how to approach. So some people have a sort of playful touch in the context of their relationships that works and other people feel kind of startled if someone approaches them from behind or starts tickling them. And so there could be limits around the body. And then of course limits can can exist around money and finances. And there could be limits around whether or not someone pays you back and the time or the pace at which they pay you back. Or if there's a shared budget, are they sticking within the budget? So again, these are just some examples to get you thinking about the different limits in your life, the different limits as they apply to different relationships of your life and different life domains. 
Because really, it, it is possible that someone could be really good at respecting your limits around your time and your physical space, but they're less able to honor your limits around giving unsolicited advice. And so it's not that someone categorically is not respectful of your limits. Of course, there could be someone in your life who is categorically not respecting your limits across a lot of circumstances. But I think more often than not, there is some variation within a person in a relationship in terms of the kinds of limits they are operating within and the kinds of limits that they are exceeding. So in addition to thinking about these limits and these various life domains and your own personal barometers of motivation, effectiveness, and emotions that can guide you towards knowing when a limit has been exceeded, it's also really important to be non-judgmental with yourself about your reactions. And I see this happen often when we compare ourselves to others and feel like, well, I should be able to put up with this or other people don't necessarily have this strong of a reaction. So really, again, treating your needs and desires and what isn't working for you as valid and legitimate and also treating yourself with a sense of compassion that these are needs that we all have as human beings. So the second step in this process, once you have a sense of what kind of limit has been crossed, by whom, and in what domain, really narrowing down to identify in a concrete, specific way what the person has done that has exceeded your limits. And so it can be helpful to really review your memory of recent interactions and to think, okay, say your barometer is frustration and really feeling that flushed face, increased heart rate, those are all signs for you that someone has exceeded your limit in some kind of way. And so thinking back to interactions with this particular person, what are times you felt those sensations in your body? At what point in those memories did your reaction begin? And what chain of events led up to you feeling that way? What did the other person do or not do? What did you or not do? And really reflecting on verbal and nonverbal behaviors and trying to define what it is that they are doing or not doing as specifically and concretely as possible with objective facts and observable descriptors. So Let me share an example of of what I mean. So let's just say you realize, okay, I think that my frustration and those sensations that I feel in my body are really tied to these offensive remarks that this person says. Now, if you go to someone and say, I'm feeling really frustrated that you keep using offensive language, that isn't quite specific enough because we all have different standards and ideas about what constitutes offensive language. So we may not be on the same page about what we're even talking about. So it's really important to hone in on the specifics. Well, what were the specific phrases? What were the specific words? Was there also an element of volume that was involved of tone was there some some sarcasm there or some criticism were there certain gestures that went along with the offensive language or the language that felt offensive to you was there something about the eye contact that contributed was there some kind of intensity of the behavior or frequency of the offensive remarks that contributed to your level of frustration so this may seem I know sometimes people have some judgment that this is seems excessive, but I really do think that the more specific you can be about what it is that someone is doing or not doing that is crossing your limit, the more effectively you can communicate with them about it and the more effectively they can understand your perspective and then change their behavior accordingly. So another example might be really feeling like someone is disengaged really not paying attention to you, not really caring about what you have to say. And so again, figuring out, well, what is it about them that to me reads as disengagement? Is it their eye contact? Is it what they're doing? Is it that they're scrolling on their phone or they keep checking their phone? Maybe they're not on their phone and it's face down to the side of the table, but they keep looking at it. Maybe I feel disengaged because they're not sharing their perspective. 
Or maybe they're saying, I don't know a lot. Or maybe they're not really using a lot of nonverbal gestures like nodding or saying, mm-hmm, as I'm talking. So really going through your memory of recent interactions in which that barometer of limit crossing showed up to really reflect on what are the specifics here. Now, the next step is to then compassionately try to define what we would like someone to do instead. So as you all know, I imagine many of you had teachers in elementary school who said, don't define a word by saying what the word isn't. You also want to say what the word is. And I think that's relevant here. So yes, we do want to know what we want someone to not do. And we also want to know what we would like them to do instead. And it goes better when we are able to do that in a compassionate a compassionate way. So when I am thinking about ways to have empathy for someone else's behavior, to have compassion for where they are coming from, I focus on four key domains in which someone's behavior might make sense given their life context. So one is biological vulnerability. So was someone born into the world in a certain kind of way? So say for example, there's someone in my life with whom whenever I have an intense conversation, they get really tearful and upset and tend to escalate with their level of upset in a way that detracts from the conversation. So it goes from me expressing my need to us then trying to help comfort this other person and help them regulate. So they may have been born into the world with a certain kind of emotional vulnerability. They're a naturally sensitive human being when there is intense conflict or some kind of confrontation in their life. That is a pattern that exists. And so I don't have to use their temperament or their biological vulnerability as an excuse to not engage and to switch the topic of the conversation to themselves or the focus to comforting them rather than focusing on what I'm initially bringing up. But it does help me have a little bit of compassion for what they are doing that is exceeding my limit, which in this case is crying to the extent that we're distracted by the original conversation. Another example could be learning. So what were their models growing up? Who are the models in their life currently? What have they been taught? What have they been reinforced for? We all know that there are behaviors that develop across time that often exist because of how our world around us has interacted. So if I've been taught that people tend to ignore me unless I get really loud, unless I start yelling, that conflict resolution style may be a learned pattern. Again, we're not excusing it. We're not saying that it's necessarily okay for us. That might be something that exceeds my limits for someone to yell at me in the context of conflict. But we can understand where it comes from if we look at the context of their life and how it might be learned. I also think a lot about trauma and the ways in which our trauma history might lead us to interact in certain ways with other people. And this could also be related to attachment and early models of connection like with parents or siblings or other loved ones. It's not to say that all attachment is necessarily trauma-related, but there are certain difficulties related to attachment that might persist long-term into adulthood. And so I often do think about, well, if someone's really shutting down in the context of the conversation, perhaps that's because they've been punished in the past for vocalizing their their responses. So that could be a bit of learning there. But there also could be a bit of trauma. Perhaps they were very verbally abused or physically abused for vocalizing their needs in the past. And so when there is heated conflict, they tend to shut down and go into more of a self-protective mode because of that trauma history. And the fourth category I often think about is social influences. So I think about gender socialization. I think about cultural influences. I think about peer interactions. I think about the media. So there are all sorts of reasons that people might be engaging in behaviors that exceed our limits because of these social messages and influences that they have internalized. So again, these aren't meant to be excuses for the behavior, but more to help us understand where that behavior comes from, how it has developed, so that when we communicate about it, we can have that compassionate mentality in mind. 
So with that compassionate mentality as a framework, we then need to focus on generating an idea of what this person could do instead. So given these challenges, how can they respond to me in a different way that is more within my limits? Is there something that they could do to increase my motivation to be around them? Is there something they could do differently in order for me to feel less frustrated and more tolerant and loving and willing? And so spending just as much time thinking about what they could do differently as you spent thinking about what you would like them to stop doing. These steps then lead into the fourth step, which is to plan out what you would like to say to the other person regarding your limit and what they are doing that is exceeding your limit with all of these contextual factors in mind. And so of course, it's difficult to plan out what you want to say and to be really thoughtful and intentional about what you'd like to communicate without this level of clarity that we've been talking about. So you also want to consider, what is my goal here? What outcome do I want to achieve? What do I want to be different as a result of this interaction? How do I want the other person to feel about me after this interaction is over? And how do I want to feel about myself? What are the most important values that I want to uphold in this interaction? So those three pieces, what do I want to be different or what is my goal here? How do I want the other person to feel about me, which also ties into the relationship? Is this a relationship that you want to maintain? Do you want them to still like you? Do you want them to still engage with you? And then third, related to your own values and your own sense of self-respect. How do I want to feel about myself when this is over? And what are the most important values I want to uphold here? Another factor to consider is whether the other person is capable of giving you what you are asking for. So this is different than whether they're willing to or whether they will take the steps, but reflecting on whether they have that capacity. And depending on how you answer that question, that might lead you to ask for something more or less strongly. If you're asking for something that you think actually isn't within someone's capacity given their learning history, you might still bring it up, but be willing to negotiate for a small shift that isn't quite exactly what you want, but is close enough for the time being, and that you will temporarily soften your limits, so to speak, to give them some time to learn the new behavior. So for example, if we go back to the earlier example of the person who has some difficulties with um, regulating emotion in the context of intense conflict, then it might be too much to ask to say, stop crying altogether, if that's what your limit is and that's what you would need. Um, So perhaps you could say something like, well, what if when you are crying, we take a few minutes to pause and to allow you to go for a walk, take some deep breaths, and then we come back together again once you're feeling a little bit more supported and regulated. So you're essentially trying to negotiate what would be something that they could do as an act of good faith, as a kind gesture that they hear you and that they want to give you what you need but aren't quite there yet, what is one small step that they could take? So really thinking about their capacity. Of course, you don't want to overly fragilize them and assume that what you're asking is not within their capacity, but but it is something to consider. Timeliness is another consideration. So when is a good time to ask this person? Are they in a good mood? Are they paying attention? And am I, am I asking them at a time that they're likely to say yes? Am I asking them at the very end of a long week in which they're burned out in stress? And on the flip side, not playing too much into timeliness and trying to create the perfect circumstances for someone to say yes. So as we mentioned earlier, it can be costly to delay these kinds of conversations around limits because it can get to the point where things just get really bad that we're so emotionally activated that we can't communicate effectively. So it's also important to weigh that side as well. Another important consideration is the the dynamics in your relationship related to power. So if you are, for example, talking to a boss, it might be very different from talking to your child. And in keeping the power dynamics in mind, as you work to articulate what you would like in a way that is effective and honors the reality of the relationship. So 
You may not go into the conversation for the first time with a super high intensity if you are perhaps not in a position of power, or you might if it's really important to you. So really just, again, keeping in mind what is the power dynamic in this relationship? How important is this limit to me? Because that's going to affect how intensively you are asking for what you want. And then also considering whether what you're asking for makes sense given the relationship, the type of relationship that you have and the history, which also leads into reciprocity. So thinking about, am I doing as much for the other person as I'm requesting? Of course, this balance doesn't need to be 50-50, but again, across time, we want our relationships to have a sense of reciprocity and mutuality. And so am I willing to give if this other person says yes? Am I willing to be mindful of their limits? And And do I feel like I'm giving as much to this relationship as I am asking of them? Once you have a sense of how some of these contextual factors might affect how strongly or intensively you'll make your request, you can then plan out what specifically you want to say. And so I like to start with describing what the behavior is that is exceeding limits. So as we talked about a few steps ago, we want to do this in a way that is non-judgmental and that tries its best to focus on what is observable so that we can be on the same page about what we're talking about. We then want to express how that behavior that is exceeding our limits affects us, what the emotional impact is. I also like tying into the emotional impact some validation of the other person. So as we were saying before, most of the time people are doing their best. Of course, there are circumstances in which people are being malicious and unkind purposefully, but most of the time people are trying to act in accordance with their values. We're all humans navigating this messy life together. And so while it is helpful to be honest and direct, it's also important to empathize with the other person and try to understand their perspective in a way that assumes the best of intentions. So it's really easy when we're frustrated to assume someone's trying to hurt us, that they're being rude, they're selfish, they're inconsiderate. And most of the time, those assumptions are not helpful. So if we can enter this conversation with that compassionate stance we were talking about earlier, that can really help the conversation go better. And I do think that there is a way to both express what isn't working for us, express the emotional impact the other person is having on us, and validate where they are coming from as well. Then asserting ourselves, making our request in the form of a question And then reinforcing the person by sharing how engaging in a different behavior, how operating more squarely within our limits might benefit them and the relationship. So I'll walk through this with an an example, but wanted to share that sort of overarching frame with you first. So you're going to describe what they're doing. You'll then express the emotional impact and validate them. Then you'll assert yourself in the form of a question and finally reinforce them for engaging in what you are asking. So let's just say that I'm in a relationship in which when I share something that's deeply upsetting, the other person responds by not really saying very much at all. So I might say something like this. Last week when we were talking about what happened at work, you didn't really say very much in response. You were making eye contact and I could tell that you were listening, but you didn't really say anything else. And so I felt really hurt by that and disconnected from you. So in the future, when I'm upset like that, even if you don't know what to say, would you be willing to acknowledge that you're listening? So maybe saying something like, Melissa, I am paying attention to you and I do hear you. I'm just not what sure to say right now and I do want to help. I, I think if you were able to verbally say that you're paying attention and hearing me and that you're not responding because you don't know what to say, I think it would help me feel closer to you and I'll be less resentful and more enjoyable to be around. So you can see how this example hits all of those components of 
describing what the person is doing that is upsetting me. I'm expressing my feelings about it. I feel hurt and disconnected from you. I'm also including a little bit of validation. I'm saying I I could tell that you were listening because you were making eye contact and you were nodding. And then I'm saying, and at the same time, I I need a more verbal affirmation, some kind of verbal response to help me know that you're there. And then I'm reinforcing it by saying, and if you were able to do this, I think I would feel closer to you. I think I'd be more pleasant to be around. I'd be less resentful. There could also be some kind of validation here, meaning if this person in our lives tends to have a more quiet style or they're someone who needs some time to process, we could say, you know, I know that sometimes when I'm really activated, you really want to help and you need some time to process because you want to be thoughtful about what you say in response. You don't want to say something unintentionally hurtful and so I know you need that time to process and so I'm not asking you to go against that style per se. I just want some kind of acknowledgement. And so there could be some validation there about the other person's style and how it makes sense given those key factors we were mentioning earlier like vulnerability biologically, trauma history, social influences, etc. While I do think being really intentional about these conversations that have the potential to be challenging can go a long way, of course even with a plan there can be challenges and so I think it's helpful to spend some time talking about the common barriers that I see in my own life and the lives of people with whom I work that tend to show up in the context of observing limits. So the first is skills. People feeling like they don't know what to say, they don't necessarily have the skills to communicate their needs as effectively as they would like, often feeling like they either shut down when there's pushback or they get too aggressive, and so really feeling like they don't really have the ability to observe limits. And so In response to that, I often think about the fact that this is a skill like any other skill and that it can be developed, even if it wasn't modeled for you, even if you haven't had a lot of experience. It takes commitment though and it takes practice. And so I do think some of what we mentioned in terms of planning out a conversation can be really helpful with increasing our confidence regarding our skills. But I also also think it can be helpful to practice and say things out loud before you say something to someone else to imagine yourself doing it in your mind and coming up with some kind of plan for how you might respond to any hiccups in the process there is a lot of utility and this is supported by research in doing that kind of imaginal practice in terms of rehearsing and and getting ready for a potentially difficult interaction You can also role play and try this out with a friend. And I know a lot of people understandably have some self-consciousness around that kind of practice, but it can really be valuable to get a sense of what might come up for you in the context of the interaction. What thoughts might you have? What bodily sensations might you have? What emotions might you have? So again, that you can cope in advance and plan for how you're going to regulate those emotions and thoughts. What kind of inner self-talk can you have if negative thoughts arise? How can you regulate your physiology? So it's important to have this practice and rehearsal before you have the conversation so that you have a sense of how to support yourself in the context of it. The second barrier that often I hear people talk about is self-doubt. So again, not just specific to their skill level, um, but just not really feeling confident about what they're asking for. And so this can manifest as over-apologizing, not really appearing confident in terms of tone of voice and body posture. And so I think it's really important to have a way to resist urges to over-apologize in the context of these kinds of interactions. And I think tone of voice and body language are super important. And it can be sort of a fake it till you make it kind of situation where you might not feel confident but you're trying to appear confident you're making eye contact and you may be familiar with this research that shows that when you engage in a certain kind of facial expression or body posture it sends signals to your brain that can shift your mood so for example Thich Nhat Hanh 
who who I adore has this mindfulness practice called a half smiling practice where you slightly turn up the corners of your mouth. You're not smiling for a photo in a really intense way. It's a slight smile that someone who's watching you might not even notice. And if you breathe deeply with that half smile in an open posture with your hands placed on your thighs, open and gently spread towards the ceiling, that that can actually send signals to your brain regarding joy and happiness and appreciation and gratitude. So even if you try this practice, when you're not in a great mood, it can shift your mood. It can soften anger. It can soften tension. And so the same applies here. If you appear confident, if you take a confident stance in your body posture, in your facial expressions, it can send signals of confidence to your brain, which can support you in this process. Another thing to keep in mind is what some people refer to as the broken record technique that if someone starts pushing back on your request or taking things in a different direction you can keep saying things like I'm happy to talk about that later right now I would like to keep our focus on this and keep repeating your request over and over again can also be a way to address some of that self-doubt or that concern that you might waver with that pushback. There's also an element, I think, of values alignment, which is really important. So as we said earlier, if you go into the interaction with a sense of what your values are, is it being truthful? Is it being direct? Is it being fair? Is it being honest? Is it being kind? Really identifying those in advance so that you can try to stick to them in the context of the interaction. I really feel like being in alignment with our values is a form of scaffolding. It's a foundation. It's a support that can help us doubt ourselves less in the context of the interaction because we feel in alignment. Another barrier I often hear people talk about is their history, their past experiences with observing limits. So perhaps being criticized for observing limits in the past, maybe punished for them, maybe interactions escalating. And so what I try to think about with these kinds of barriers is using those experiences as an opportunity for learning and potentially trying out different approaches. And so similar to what we were talking about before related to walking through past experiences in your mind and the chain of events that led you to feel as though your limits are being crossed, we can do this with history regarding observing limits. So reflecting on the times where we don't feel like things went so well and perhaps reflecting on the times where we feel like they did go relatively well and figuring out what happened during those interactions that led to those outcomes feeling better or worse. So how can we slow it down? How can we walk through that chain of events? What was happening inside of me? What was happening for the other person based on what I could observe? What did that really look like and how can we do something differently the next time? Another barrier that often comes up is related to judgment. So really judging our needs and our desires as too much or our limits as too rigid. Internalizing some kind of negative narrative about ourselves and what it means about us that we have this limit. So here I think it's really crucial to treat anything that exceeds our limits as valid, as legitimate as making sense given all sorts of factors and sometimes it can help to really take a step back and think about the needs that we all have as humans how needs are a part of our shared humanity and how this process of observing limits is something that is necessary for us to be in relationship with others so when I think about some common human needs one that comes to mind is connection So on some level, we all have a need for affection and acceptance and compassion and consideration and to feel included like we belong, that there's reciprocity and mutuality in relationships, that we're nurtured. We have a need for safety interpersonally and stability and support and we want to be known. We want to feel seen and heard and understood. And so those are all kinds of values and needs related to connection that might be compromised when someone is exceeding a limit. And we also have needs related to meaning, how we make sense of things. So this could involve creativity and growth, need for mourning, self-awareness, challenge. There are needs related to autonomy, like choice and independence and spontaneity. 
physical needs like rest and safety and sexual expression and shelter and air and food that are clean and and healthy. And then play, that joy and humor and lightheartedness and peace. Things like organization and order in our environment as well as harmony and inspiration. And so all of these needs are human and most often when we think about a limit that has been exceeded we can tie it back to an underlying need that isn't being met and that can be an important way recognizing that need that isn't being met can be an important way of validating ourselves for this limit that we have and how it's being crossed and and validating ourselves in our legitimacy and approaching the other person and it can also be something that we explicitly communicate to the other person when we are expressing the emotional impact their behavior is having on us. We can say, this is important to me because I have a need for connection or I have a need for peace or I have a need for meaning making. And I see this as something that can help other people really understand our perspective and where we're coming from rather than something that we're doing to overly justify our stance. Another way to work with judgment in the context of limits can be to have some kind of empowering statement that can guide us. So something like, I deserve connection. It can be as simple as that. Or what I refer to as a dialectical statement where we acknowledge two things that might seem opposite as true simultaneously. So for example, maybe I am feeling very judgmental about my need for space emotionally. And so I could have some kind of statement like, I feel self-conscious about this need and I know that it is something I deserve. So something where, some kind of statement where you're acknowledging different sides of the reality. Another barrier I often see come up is related to worry. So what ifs, worst case scenarios, negative predictions of outcomes. And I think something that can help with worry is considering if this happens, how can I respond? If these what ifs, if these worst case scenarios, if these negative predictions turn out to be true, how can I respond? Because that can help us feel more confident in our capacity regardless of what happens. Another question we can ask ourselves is, am I basing this more on facts or my feelings? Are my concerns driven by by worry or by past experience? And depending on how I answer that question, I might respond differently. If it's about my feelings, the answer might then be to regulate my emotions through breath practices or exercise or bring my physiology down before, during, and after the interaction. And if it's more based on facts, I might use this history as a learning opportunity like we were talking about earlier to change my approach this time. We also sometimes confuse possible with probable. And so considering, okay, how likely is it that this person will respond in this way? And that can also be helpful. It can also be helpful to have a coping plan for after the interaction. Is there a friend or therapist that you can call? Someone that you can debrief with? Are you someone who really likes to take a warm bath or go on a run. So really thinking about how can you self-care after doing this thing that might be hard. And then the final risk I want to highlight for today is related to risks. So often when we are thinking about approaching a difficult interaction, we might not do so because it feels too risky. And so I often think about are these risks worth the cost of not asking for what I need? What am I losing by not observing this limit? So often we focus on the potential for what we might lose if we ask for what we need at the expense of really thinking about what am I losing by not asking. So this could be weighing the pros and cons of asking in a more formal way. It could also be just thinking about the balance of short and long-term benefits. So am I prioritizing peace now but creating problems in the long run is the short-term peace more important to me than the long-term health of the relationship in some circumstances it might be will not asking result in feeling badly about myself now and create even more problems long term so again thinking not just about the costs of not observing this limit now also thinking about the costs long term 
So in summary, there really are a multitude of benefits of observing limits, particularly when we engage in this process in a way that truly reflects our innermost needs and desires and values. The first step in this five-step process is to monitor our limits in an ongoing way within and across relationships and in different life domains so we can identify when a limit has been crossed. The second is to identify what the other person has specifically done that crosses our limits with as much concrete detail as possible. The third is to define what we would like for them to do instead, but to do so with compassion and to consider factors of their life like social influences, learning, trauma history, and biological vulnerability that might be contributing to their actions. The fourth is to plan out what we would like to say, considering key contextual factors so that we can adjust our intensity accordingly and be really intentional about our process. And the fifth and final step is to actually assert ourselves and to go through this process, which may need to be repeated over time. It may need to be something that we return to again and again and again. So through this process, we can observe limits in ways that get our needs met and align with our values while at the same time nourishing the health of the relationships we want to maintain and helping us feel more confident and empowered. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.